The following message is presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Now the message. I have a question. What makes a person want to join or attend a particular church? You ever thought about that? A little bit more personal. Why do you think someone would want to come to First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana? Well, Pew Research, you find this information in the little bulletin insert that I have, found that there were several reasons that people gave as to why they would want to go to a church to become closer to God, to have their children get a moral foundation for life, to become a better person, to find comfort in time of trouble. Why would anyone not want to go to church? If I had my way, and you had your way, most likely you would want to join a church that not only talked about, but practiced the purposes of a church. Several years ago, there were a couple of books that were very, very popular to read. The Purpose-Driven Life and the Purpose-Driven Church. Rick Warren, pastor out in uh, California, wrote those books. And he mentioned in the Purpose-Driven Church that there are several reasons that God created the church. And there are at least five or maybe six purposes that he details in that book. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it. The church that is what Jesus wants it to be is a place of worship. We come to express our appreciation to God for who He is and what He has done. Some people see the purpose of the church as fellowship. That word koinonia is used so many times to describe the relationship of members in the church. It is a deep kind of fellowship, joint sharing together, koinonia. One of the purposes of the church is discipleship, learning what the Word of God says so that we can implement it in our life. You come to Sunday school for that purpose. You come to worship, hopefully, to learn something about what the Bible says to help us in our everyday life. The church has a purpose of ministry, taking care of each other's needs or maybe the needs of others outside the church. Sometimes a great purpose of the church is evangelism. To share the gospel so that other people who have not accepted Christ as Savior would hear clearly what what the Bible says about having a relationship with God. How to be saved. I think that if a church, regardless of its size, focuses upon what the Bible says is our real reason for existence, then it's a good congregation. Do we have any pictures of a church like that? Yes. 
Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people were born into the family of God, you see these very things in the end of chapter 2 that describe the first church. But we also have it in the book of Revelation. When Jesus was writing to seven churches, now, let me remind you, I believe that these were seven individual churches, and you can find them on a map, a circular kind of of description of where they were. These were seven local congregations. But folks, there's a whole lot more than just them being seven local congregations. If you take church history and these seven churches and read them side by side, you will obviously notice that these seven churches represent seven ages or seven periods of church history. This would correspond, the church at Philadelphia to the mission ministry of the church that began after the dark ages of the church. The China Inland Mission and other mission agencies were established to send missionaries from their home out to where people had not heard the gospel. And this church is one of two that has no negative criticisms. Jesus loves the church that does missions and ministry. And he compliments that church. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from the third chapter of uh, Revelation, uh, the paragraph that begins in verse 7. And we're going to read about this church at Philadelphia. You know that the church name means brotherly love. We have a city in America named Philadelphia because it's a city of brotherly love. But did you know that this The location of this was on a very precarious place. Many uh, uh, earthquakes came and destroyed it. Twice devastated in other times that they would just have to run and hide because the buildings were going to fall down, they thought. And many people were killed in some of the earthquakes. They had volcanoes that would come occasionally and erupt there. So, about 19 A.D., There was a horrible earthquake that almost destroyed the entire city. And Tiberius was the Roman emperor. And he sent a lot of help financially and otherwise to help rebuild the city. And in honor of him, they renamed the city. They named it kind of New Caesar, New Caesarea, in honor of him. Several Years later, another tremendous earthquake came and destroyed the city again. And another Roman emperor sent that. And his name was Vespasian. They named it after his family name. But it always came back to be the city of brotherly love. It was a small town. In fact, commentators will tell you this is the least significant of any of the seven cities that were addressed in Revelation 2 and 3. It was not popular for a lot of different reasons. But when Jesus looked at this city, looked at this church, He had something positive to say about that. And Karen has chosen songs that we sang today that reflect some things that we're going to see in the Scripture. The description of Jesus, for instance. Oh my This is a wonderful study. If you've been with us and the other studies, you probably got tired of, I did, of 
studying some of those things because, my goodness, the dead church, living where Satan's throne was, those kinds of things, the Jezebel influence, my goodness, that'd break your heart. But we come to this church and you got a smile on your face because this is a church that our Lord pats on the back and says some mighty positive things about. Let me read the paragraph that begins in verse 7. You follow along in your copy of Scripture. My superscription in my Bible calls this the faithful church. I call it the church of the open door or the open door church. Verse 7, Revelation 3. To the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my commands to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love this passage of Scripture. Look first with me at the one who says these words, the messenger find that in verse 7. He who is holy. Almost gives me cold chills just to think about. He who is holy. We just sang about that. Holy is He. That word literally means to be set apart. It means to be, I guess, undefiled. The word holy has to... Uh, to do with uh, perfection. It has to do with having no sin, no spot or blemish. And when you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, He is holy. He is different. He is distinct. He is separated from every other thing and every other person that's ever lived. He is unique. He is he, he's, he's holy. He is wonderful. And when you think about that, everything about Him is holy. His character, His words, His work, His, uh, his sacrifice, his, uh, his purpose in life, everything that Jesus did was holy because it was distinctly different from anything else that had ever happened uh, in this world. He is 
unique. He is the only one worthy of praise. And when you come to understand that, you fall at His feet. In fact, when John saw the resurrected Lord in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, you remember what he said? When I turned to see the voice, I fell at His feet as dead because it was such an awesome, awesome experience. When we come to understand God is holy, then He calls us to be holy, then we understand how much we desperately need Him because we in our own strength will never be holy. He who writes to the church is holy. Then He says He is true. He is true. The word true, of course, means authentic, genuine, trustworthy. He is dependable. Well, the deacons that served alongside me when I was pastor at First Baptist Church in Colmus, Neil, had a, had a phrase. His, his nickname was Cornbread. Cornbread Coward. And that fit him, too. <laughs> He said about someone that was a pretty good fellow, he would do to swim the river with. He is dependable enough that you can swim the river with. That's not a very good description of Jesus, but listen, he is dependable. You can trust in him. Everything about him is good. Not only is he holy, he is true. He is trustworthy, dependable, genuine. No, no flaw in this one we call our Lord and Savior. Then the third definition that he gives himself is, you can sum it up by saying he is sovereign. He has the key of David. Now what does that mean? If you have your Bible, you might look back at Isaiah chapter 22, because this is a quotation of verse 22. But let me begin reading in verse 20. If you don't have your Bible, listen to the Word, because it helps us understand what Jesus is using as an illustration to describe who He is. Verse 20 of Isaiah 22, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe. I will strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now listen to verse 22. And the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in the secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Now what does that mean? There was this servant of David who was so trustworthy, named Eliakim, that they gave him the key to David's palace and to the treasury. Can you imagine a person trustworthy enough to have the key to open and close the treasury of the richest man who lived at that time. He was, he was alright. Because when he closed the door, nobody could open it. 
when he opened the door, no one could close it. He had full authority to do in David's house anything that he wanted. And when Jesus uses that analogy of who he is, he's saying, I have the key to the throne of God. I open the door, I am the door, I close the door, and no one can open it again. You cannot get to God without going through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Do you understand? He is the door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except Him. He is the way. And that's what He's saying. I have the authority, I have the the sovereignty of letting people in or keeping them out. I am sovereign. You recall when we studied the crucifixion of Christ? About the time of the evening offering when Jesus died, the Scripture says He shouted that loud verse, Tetelestai, it is finished. And He bowed His head and dismissed His spirit. And at that exact moment, what happened in the temple? <laughs> From the top to the bottom, the veil that separated man from God was torn in two. And we walked through, we could see into the very heart of God in the temple. And Jesus says, I am that person. I am the one who writes to you and says, I have the keys to heaven. But did you also know that he gave the keys to the kingdom, to the church. Matthew 16. When Jesus talked about establishing the church. You have the keys, he said, to the church. Not to a person, but to the church. Who is this that's addressing the church at Philadelphia? Oh, he's none other than the Lord himself. Holy and true. And full of power to do what he wants to do. I am the sovereign Lord of life. But what did he have to say? That's his message. If you look at verses 8 and following, you'll see that he had much to say that was positive about this church. Now this was a small congregation. He calls them small without any strength. But I have set before you an open door. A door of opportunity, perhaps. The Apostle Paul wrote about that in several places. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, I have it marked. 1 Corinthians 16, 9 says, For a great and effective door has opened to me. There are many adversaries. Paul had a door of opportunity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, what verse is that? 12. Therefore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. A door of opportunity. He encourages the church at Colossae to pray for an open door when he says in chapter 4, verse 3, Pray 
for us that God would open to us a door for the Word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. God, in His infinite wisdom, has given to a church, small in number perhaps, insignificant in comparison to others, an open door of opportunity. You see, it's not the size of the church, but the size of the God of the church that makes every, all the difference. And this little church, seemingly insignificant, was given a door of opportunity. I wonder if God would give us a door of opportunity. I wonder if He would say to First Baptist Church, Manny, Louisiana, Here's an opportunity to glorify yourself as you do what I ask you to do. A door of opportunity. Or maybe it's not the whole congregation, it's the individual. An opportunity to serve the Lord. To teach a class. To give an offering. To go on a mission trip. To sing a song. Whatever it is that God puts in your pathway that is an opportunity of serving Him, maybe that's your door of opportunity. Don't neglect to look at what God is doing. He may be opening up opportunities for us collectively or you individually to step out in faith and do what He wants you to do. I have set before you a door of opportunity. I want you and I want myself to look for those open doors of opportunity. He says you have a little power. You don't have to depend upon your own power. We depend upon the power of God. When He calls us to do something and we know His will, then He is responsible for giving us the ability to do what He's called us to do. He knows we're weak. He knows we're unable. But He said to Paul, My strength is made perfect in weakness. He knows who you are and what you can do. But oh my goodness, He knows who He is and what He can do through you. Donald Barnhouse is famous for saying, quote, Better to be a little church with a big God than a big church with a little God. Did you hear me? Better to be a little church with a big God than a big church with a little God. When God calls us, He calls us to be obedient because He says to this church, You have kept my word and not denied my name. What a powerful little church the church of brotherly love, the church of the open door was. And I believe that God wants that to happen in all of His churches. Criticism? Couldn't find any. Two of the seven churches that are addressed in this series of chapter 2 and chapter 3 in Revelation... Smyrna, the suffering church, and this church, there was nothing negative that the Lord said to them.
Wouldn't it be wonderful if we stood before the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and they could not find anything negative to say about us or our church? He does give some commands. Hold fast what you have. In other words, don't quit. I've told you before, one of my favorite words from the Greek text is hypomone. It means to stand strong and firm under a load. And that's what Jesus says to this church. You have been standing fast, holding fast. Don't quit. Don't give up. What Churchill said one time was, never, never, never give up. And that's what Jesus said to that little church. Don't quit. And then he talks about consequences. Oh, my soul, if we will do what he says for us to do. Listen to what he said to that church and maybe to us. I will make you a pillar in the house of my God. What would that mean? The pillar was something strong and secure and showed strength. It has to do, I think, with with our eternal security. When we are made into a pillar, we are there because God has done something in us and through us, and He honors us by making us a pillar in the house of the Lord. And He says, you'll not have to go out. Remember I told you that at least on two occasions the whole city was devastated with an earthquake? And every time there would be a tremor, people would run out because they were afraid of being killed in the earthquake. And God says when you get to where you're going, you'll never have to leave. You are there eternally and it's always safe. What a wonderful picture that is. He says we'll have God's name. God's name on us. What would that mean? Some of you guys and ladies perhaps have cattle. Have you ever branded a cow? Put your stamp of ownership on that animal? That's the picture here. In the period of time in which this was written, they had slaves, and the slave owner would often brand their slave to identify who was the owner. Listen, when Jesus Christ comes into your life, He puts His brand upon us, and we are His, and His forever. Nobody can take away the brand. We belong to Jesus Christ, and we are forever and eternally His. I will give you the name of God and the name of the city of God. I suppose that means that we belong to Him and our citizenship is in heaven. We'll never ever have to give up that citizenship. And then He says, I'll give you my new name. The name in the Old Testament and the New Testament seem to reveal character. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to give you my new name so that you will always be representing me in the world. I am excited about what my name is going to be in heaven. What's your name going to be in heaven? 
I don't know. Nobody knows at this point. But one of these days, we're going to be identified with a name that reveals our character. What privileges God is giving this church because they have been faithful and have done what He has told them to do even though they were small in number. I think if I were living in that day, I'd want to join the First Baptist Church of Philadelphia, wouldn't you? It was a good church. Some of the others were difficult, but this one was good. Do you think the Lord wants this church to be a Philadelphia church? Do you think the head of the church, Christ, would say to this church, I want you to be a Philadelphia church? What would it mean? What would it take? The question that comes to me is, what would I do or what would you do to make it a Philadelphia church? Can you see the Lord speaking? Drawing us out to see the whole picture? We're to glorify Him in our life. The church is to honor Him in His busyness. We're to serve the Lord every way we can. And I think He wants us to do just that. I read about a construction project. They were actually building a church sanctuary. And the foreman walked around and he saw three different men who were working. The first one, he said, Sir, what are you doing? And he said, I'm laying bricks. Okay? Walked up to another guy who was also laying bricks and he said, Sir, what are you doing? He said, I'm building a church. To the third one, he said, And sir, what are you doing? He said, I am building a house of worship for the glory of the Lord. Now, all three were doing the same kind of labor. But the direction and the purpose and the goal was distinctly different. We need to be building a house for the glory of God because that's what God deserves. He is holy. It's better to be a small church with a big God than a big church with a small God. How big is your God? Let's pray. What would God speak to us today about the letter to the Church of Philadelphia? What would He want to accomplish in us and through us? Maybe today He's calling you to see that open door of opportunity that you could serve Him. You could effectively glorify His name. Is that what God's calling Is He calling our church collectively to be a church that's known by good things that God does through us? 
If God led you to make a commitment today, would you be willing to do it? Our hymn of invitation is wherever he leads, I'll follow. Pretty good statement. Bold statement. Let's not just sing the words. Let's do what it says. Father, I pray today that you'll help me and us to desire to be a church like the church at Philadelphia. Small in number, but great in its influence because they served you well. May I and we be known as that kind of person and that kind of church. There are some who need to make decisions here today. I pray that you'll not let anything happen to hold us back from doing exactly what you want us to do. If there's one who's never trusted Christ as Savior, maybe this is the day that you have designed for them to come to know your Savior. And other decisions of rededicating our life or committing ourselves to some kind of service that you've called us to, or whatever the message may be that you have brought to our hearts, may we say yes, yes to the Lord. And as we sing these songs, these words, I pray that the message of the song would be the message of our heart. Wherever you lead, I'll follow. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about the church, including contact information, go to the website www.fbcmany.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.